0: Welcome to Neon, your look at history behind pop culture that you love. I'm Jem Duducu, and this week we're going to be talking about The A-Team. So, naturally, that classic 80s TV show is going to be referencing 19th century French imperialism, a little bit about the Vietnam War, and of course, samurai movies. All that, and more, later on. But first... you got here, Brenda? This guy has been creeping around since at least 1700. Not possible. We have been here for three and a half hours. How many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything? unusual about santa carla yet
1: no it's a pretty good place
0: i'm impressed how many questions does it usually take to spot
1: as your leader i encourage you from time to time and always in a respectful manner to question my logic
0: now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor dodge this the tracks go off in this direction to give you a little confession. I'll tell you about how I used to consume the A-Team series as a kid. Obviously that ages me a little bit as well. So if you didn't know, A-Team, it was a 1980s TV series. It ran for about four series and was about... A ragtag group of mercenaries. In fact, the opening statement was, in 1973, a crack commando unit was tried for crimes and blah, 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 blah. So the point is, this bunch of uh, American soldiers who'd f- served in Vietnam were Basically sent to prison, but they broke out and they now now uh, live in the LA uh, underworld. If you can find them, uh, maybe you can hire the A Team. And at which point, my head is now full of the brilliant theme tune. I have to say, look, there are there are many great openings to TV series. There are many great TV series, and actually, the A Team isn't one of them. It's a guilty pleasure, and it was fun when you were a kid. But if you're sitting there going, "What are you talking about, Jem?" i ask you as an adult to go back and look at the tv series it's flawed okay it's gloriously 80s but it's flawed Um, however as an opening as something to say you should hang on and watch this tv series I can't think of a better opening. It's it's got all this footage. I was talking to my sister about it recently, and she's a few years younger than me. And she goes, she agreed with what I just said. She goes, but because I was like six years old at the time, Jem. Uh, I didn't know what was, what was happening in 1973. I didn't know what a crack commando unit was. I didn't understand why there was a helicopter in a jungle at the beginning of the TV series, and yet you never saw that helicopter or the jungle ever again. Really good point, that one. Thanks, sis. Uh, really, really good point. So the point is, if you don't know anything about Vietnam or uh, what was going on in, in America in the 1980s, it's probably pretty confusing as not only an opening, but also as a TV series. But the point is the, the actual theme tune itself is really euphoric and all the imagery's at least exciting, even if it makes very little narrative sense and introduces you to the principal characters now on that point let me introduce you to the principal characters you've got howling mad Murdoch who is uh, he's a pilot you've got face he is a good looking guy who was a soldier of some description then there's uh, B.A. Baracus a B.A. standing for Bad Attitude played by Mr. T in his prime this is around about the same time he was playing Clubber Lang in the Rocky movies and he uh, and- again he had been a soldier and then you get george papad playing hannibal smith who is colonel i believe and he is an, one of the one the older wiser guy now first things first let's delve into a little bit of history for a moment i cannot think of a single type of unit in any war where you would need a a colonel who would have been middle-aged at the time uh, and then two presumably infantrymen or riflemen and a pilot they all seem to have served in the same platoon together that isn't something that would make up a platoon i mean forget about the fact that there'd be other people I'll, i'll put that to one side but pilots fly in the air force maybe they fly in the marines But they don't fly infantry, okay? The the infantry don't have pilots, okay? Then why a colonel would be hanging around two sort of like sergeant level uh, people, that makes no sense whatsoever. The entire chain of command makes no sense. The entire makeup of their personalities and styles and experiences and backgrounds make no sense whatsoever. So that's the A-team as a group. But I'd like to talk a little bit about the leader of the A-Team, George Pepard. He, or Pappard, it's a little bit hard to work it out, but he had been quite the heartthrob in the 1960s. He had done movies like Operation Crossbow and, of course, most famously Breakfast Tiffany's, uh, The Blue Max, and he was seen as really, really cool. He was a bit of a heartthrob to my mother's generation, and therefore my mother was deeply disappointed seeing somebody that she thought was kind of cool and sexy now mucking around in something that was clearly beneath him. And you know what? George Papad agreed. He recognised this was a chance for a bit of a renaissance in his career. It hadn't gone very well in the 1970s for him. And this was a chance to sort of reboot himself. Problem was he thought that it was his show, whereas more than anybody, anything else, it was Mr. T that people were tuning in for. And George Papad, by all accounts, was quite, quite aggressive with Mr. T because, you know, George was a proper actor and Mr. T wasn't. But Mr. T was trying to be an actor and sort of sought out his help. And, you know, George Papad wasn't necessarily rude about it, but he was pretty rude about his abilities. So there must have been some interesting friction going on in the, in the set at any given time. Uh, George Papard also, you know, tried to use this. There was one point when he went to Time Magazine, one of the biggest magazines of the um, country, and basically said, you know, I want to be on the front cover, you know, I'm on a big hit TV show now. And they said, yeah, absolutely, but only if Mr. T's on it too. Showing how, you know, he couldn't escape the fact that it was an ensemble cast thing rather than just his show. However, back to how I consumed it with my little sister, who was apparently more confused than I realized at the time. So uh, I was, you know, young. I was sort of pre-teen. And uh, we would watch it on the, on the Saturday night it came out. But we recorded it on VHS. Do you remember that? And... That's because my parents uh, owned uh, Delicatessen, and so that they work six days a week. You know, hard-working parents. And on Sunday was the day of rest. And whereas many British people will in, have this fond memory of sitting down with their family having a Sunday roast... That wasn't our Sunday because my mum and dad had been working six days a week. The last thing they wanted to do was cook a roast. So we went to McDonald's and we picked up a takeaway McDonald's, and then me and my sister would watch for a second time that week's uh, episode of team, but the rest of the family would sit there and watch it my dad in particular guffawing at all the corny jokes and going ooh and ah at all the exciting moments it, it was like the entire program had been made for him uh, he absolutely adored every last second of it he, he, he drank down every last drop of it so that's really what happened i know we weren't the only family in the 1980s doing that it was a huge huge hit but particularly for children, it was our first experience of the Vietnam War. We were very, very hazy, particularly in Britain, as to exactly what the Vietnam War was. But in America, it was a brave way to sort of start showing some of the veterans, and in its own unique 18 kind of way, showing how the veterans of Vietnam could contribute to society that really hadn't happened in the, in the 60s and 70s when these men had come home from fighting. So the Vietnam War, what was it? Where was it? And what did the Vietnamese call it? The, as I said, we're going to start with some French imperialism. Uh, so throughout the 19th century, all the Western countries started grabbing as many bits of the world as possible. And France managed to grab a stretch of Southeast Asia which which was called Vietnam at the time. Indeed, it had been called Vietnam for since around about the 9th century AD, or Nam-Viet is actually the way it started being called, and it got swapped around. And it got renamed to French Indochina in the late 19th century. But what was interesting is the French never quite got complete control of this Uh, strip of coastal land there was always rebellions there was always insurrections and the french were quite brutal about their reprisals people were executed heads were removed with guillotines etc but the thing is it wasn't just vietnam where these problems were happening Vietnam is a very long, thin country. And therefore, if you're ever going to be interacting with Vietnam, you can't ignore the bordering countries of Laos, which is completely landlocked, and Cambodia as well. And while it sounds flippant, where did the Vietnam War happen? Well, the answer was that all three of these countries were heavily involved, uh, sometimes completely against their will. So that's how Westerners got into Vietnam. It then gets complicated. Basically, there's World War Two, where the Japanese exploded across Asia, and one of the places they exploded into was Vietnam. Now, as I said, it gets complicated, but for, for simplicity's sake, the Japanese ruled Vietnam in World War II. But the Americans, wanting to fight back against the Japanese in any way they knew how, once they were involved in World War II, which took them until Pearl Harbor in 1941— let's not go there um the, the point is that uh, they started arming some of these locals who were nationalists and wanted the country to be for themselves as their ancestors had fought against the french so it was the precursor to the cia um something called uh, oss and they armed various groups, including a man called Ho Chi Minh, who became one of the main leaders of resistance against the Japanese. Then, after World War II happened, the Japanese were obviously defeated, and there was then the slightly complex and awkward situation of, so, does Vietnam become a separate country, or does Vietnam get given back to the French, French Indochina? And America did a very good job of being seen as the peacemaker, as being seen as the neutral person trying to come to terms between colonial French power and local interests. Indeed, so much so that when Ho Chi Minh announced a free and independent Vietnam, admittedly against what America and France had been negotiating, Ho Chi Minh actually used sections of the American Declaration of Independence as a cornerstone of his speech, showing his uh, signs of uh, gratitude to the Americans. But Ho Chi Minh had been converted to the communist cause and was receiving reports from the communists and this was what was to lead america to start worrying about what's going to happen to vietnam if we if we allow a communist takeover but what america never really truly understood was ho chi minh and his followers were nationalists first and communists second but you've also got to see it from the american point of view if after world war Two half of Europe falls under the Soviet Union's powers. And then just a few short years after that, the whole of China goes communist. And then a few short years after that, you then have the Korean War where half the country becomes communist. When you suddenly got more communist uprisings happening in Vietnam, the whole idea of the domino theory, one country after another is going to fall to communism until somebody, somewhere which we really care about, somewhere like, for example, uh, Australia might end up falling to the communists. It sounds crazy. But the thing when people turn around and say the Vietnam War was fought about the domino theory and that was stupid, but it turned out to be true. Vietnam did become communist. So did Cambodia. So uh, the the thing is that the domino theory kind of actually was, was, was true. Now, whether that was worth millions of lives lost is a completely different story. But actually, the theory sort of worked in its own perverse way. In the 1950s, France fought a very bitter war against uh, Ho Chi Minh and his followers and it all led to a climactic battle at a place called Dien Bien Phu, which was where the French, in an attempt to bring the, the Vietnamese freedom fighters into a final pitch battle, they actually set up their paratrooper base, and air base in Dien Bien Phu, which was in the bottom of a valley. It was surrounded three sides by hills. And the French basically said, come and get us, because we're going to annihilate you. Come and get us. Now, on all three of these sides, there, the hills were covered in, in forests, and it was assumed by the French that the famous jungle fighters of the, of the Vietnamese freedom fighters would not be able to get artillery into these jungle areas. Idiots and that's exactly what happened and obviously they were being fired at from three different positions and the problem with that is that that meant that they couldn't get air support to come in that like, things couldn't land because it was constantly under attack it was a complete unmitigated disaster it led to the french having to sue for peace and it led to the americans becoming the the sort of the the, the again the kind of peacekeepers but with an eye to the fact that the country had now been split in half, the north half was, was communist, the south half was in theory a sort of democracy, but basically the Americans would have backed anybody who wasn't communist. And quite often in these situations, and if you like, this is almost like a story of American policy in the second half of the 20th century, anybody not communist is not the same thing as a good reliable leader or even somebody that's the, the local population want to have. All of this, and we still haven't got to America getting involved. But America did, of course, eventually get involved. They needed to prop up the South Vietnamese powers. The, the North Vietnamese would be
1: ready to pop the question. The jewelers at Blue Nile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: becoming more aggressive and wanting to break in to the South. And the thing that's worth pointing out is it's very easy to portray the Americans as the bad guys. They carried out carpet bombing, napalming, Agent Orange. There was the massacre at My Lai. You know, the Americans did not acquit themselves well in Vietnam. They are definitely you know, guilty of various war crimes. But that's not the same thing to say the communists were the good guys. You know, during the Tet Offensive, the famous Tet Offensive of 1968, there was the sacred spiritual capital of Vietnam, Hue which is in, which was actually in southern vietnam but had been largely kept free of any kind of fighting throughout the throughout the war but as part of the tet offensive the north vietnamese army invaded it held it for about a month and in that time killed at least 20,000 people through reprisal killings some people were buried to de- you know buried alive so You know, don't think that the communists were all peace and love and innocent of any kind of crimes and all the crimes should be heaped on the American shoulders. That's not what happened. So from the late 1960s all the way up to 1973, the Americans were there fighting in Vietnam, including my uncle. He was there towards the end and had an absolutely miserable time of it and did not enjoy it at all. But whereas so many Americans had sent their boys off to Vietnam, particularly early on in the war, with a great sense of pride. Although the Korean War had happened, that had largely been fought by American veterans of World War II. There were were new people to it, but Korea never really quite caught the imagination as World War II or Vietnam. But there are so many photos of, of proud fathers who had served in World War II. Again, my grandfather being one of them with his son, Sending their son off to war, obviously worried sick, hoping that they come home safe and sound, but kind of everybody assuming that they were going to have a good war, like World War Two, that they were fighting for a noble cause. But that's not what happened. You get the increasingly uh, loud stop-the-war protests, which turned into, you know, talk, pointing out the horrific crimes, things like the carpet bombing, the Agent Orange, all these sorts of things... Terrible, terrible crimes that America was committing. And this was all starting to be heaped on the troops. Baby killer was what some men would be referred to when they came back from the war. They were pillared, they were uh, spat at. And even worse, when America ultimately lost what they were trying to do in Vietnam. You could argue even worse than all the war crimes, they were losers. They were the ones who had lost a war for America after more than a century of success. And so you get certain things, Uh, jumping off to another uh, big 80s, well in this case movie, you get uh, First Blood. Later on turned into the rather cartoonish Rambo 2 and Rambo 3, but First Blood is a relatively sensitive look at the the plight of a Vietnam vet returning back to the country and nobody wants to know. Nobody wants to talk to them. Go away. So with that all in mind, that was the experience for many veterans when they came home from Vietnam. And to see suddenly themselves being portrayed as the heroes in a hugely popular TV series like The A Team uh, was actually a, a, a way to, to to start the healing process, to start the conversations in families in in America about so what did you do during the war, Dad, Grandpa, etc. So the it, it was uncomfortable and awkward but it was the background to a real pop bubblegum tv series so you you wouldn't necessarily expect that of the a-team but the a-team itself was very much of its time there's a reporter that's chasing or becomes part of the team a female reporter and In the 1980s, we're starting to see more interesting roles for women. And as a reporter, she's allowed to ask questions, etc. And she gets involved in some of their scrapes and helps talk them through things. Uh, There's one episode where she specifically says to them, will you please stop blowing things up? Will you please stop fighting? Maybe we should talk about these things before you start pulling out your guns. So she even has the power to admonish the A-team a little bit. But she is rather ornamental and her lip gloss is amazing. (laughs) Sorry, Um, her hair's pretty good too. Anyway, um, the point is that, you know, it's one little nod in a very male-orientated TV show to the fact that women are starting to change their roles in the 1980s as well. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. The other thing, of course, it is, is a little snapshot of Reagan America. America in the 1980s was very much shaped by its hugely popular president, Ronald Reagan. The president who had also been an actor, which is uh, was probably suitable for the time because you've got to be good in, ca- in front of the cameras. It would been Richard Nixon versus John F. Kennedy who had show- shown that, you know, how you look is almost just as important as what you're saying. So... Everybody had become a little bit more patriotic because of Reagan. He was hugely popular and populist as well. There are many people who who push back on him say that he was all style, no substance. Obviously, Democrats aren't huge fans of him because he's a Republican. But to those people who start condemning them, and particularly condemning him on the grounds of him being a Republican, I say this... Come on, would you rather have him rather than, say, Donald Trump or George W. Bush? I would say that Reagan was a very good president in terms of trying to unify the country. Yes, on his terms. Yes, using traditional Christian values rather than something a bit more liberal. But compared to how the Republican Party has moved over the last 20, 25 years... I would take Reagan again any day of the week. But there was a real energy in America in the 1980s, a real sort of return to pride. In the 70s, they'd been mired by things like the, the oil crisis and Vietnam, obviously, and, and the confidence had kind of slipped away from the country. The economy hadn't done so well. But in the 1980s, there was this day glow, neon even, uh, leg warmery warmth and fuzziness to what was going on in the country. And that could be shown clearly in something like the A-Team. The confidence, the swagger, but also what fundamentally the A-Team was. And this is something else that George Papard sort of was quite sniffy about. Is he said it's the same episode every single week. And he was right. What happens in the A-Team is there's a small town. And for various contrived reasons, the A-Team end up in the small town. And the small town has a problem. And for some reason, the government won't fix it or the sheriff can't fix it or whatever. And so the A-team using the local people, largely by building some kind of weird machine that fires cabbages or whatever, uh, they are able to fix the problem overcome this minor little tyranny there's one episode that i saw um they so this weird platoon that makes no sense whatsoever are going to see a buddy of theirs who had recently died and for some reason it's the car repair shop with their four guys who are running the town it's never really explained why i mean these are bad guys you can see them sort of like intimidating people and waving their guns around stuff like this but it's never really explained why the sheriff doesn't get involved or or how four guys can rule admittedly a small town but it, I mean, they're the car repair people. Can you not find a way around them? Can you, could you? Could you not dial in the FBI? But no, they need the A team to solve the problem. And actually, it's like that every time. The threat is there, but it's never truly big. It's only until the final series of the A team where they change the theme tune, by the way, and it's it's not as as satisfying. Where suddenly they're turned into more sort of international, almost sort of James Bondy type uh type mercenaries and the stunts get cooler as well the first time i ever saw a base jump was in that last series of the a-team where they sort of jump off a building and open up a parachute i think it's meant to be hannibal who does that but the point is the you you very much get the hangover of the 70s you know people are quite often talking about how my dad served in vietnam and obviously you've got the main characters all being vietnam vets the weird thing is howling mad murdoch you know he is quite often played for laughs he's quite often he's quite obviously delusional traumatized somehow it's, you know, th- those of you who really want to delve into the lore of the, uh, of A-Team, you can, uh, you know, give me a response, fill me in on this. I presume it was something to do with what happened to him in the war on the grounds that you're not going to allow a crazy person to fly aircraft. But the, um, and of course, there's the added friction that B.A. doesn't like flying. Uh, I'm getting to no fool, uh, I'm getting to no plane, sucker. Uh, I pity the fool, etc. Uh, that's my attempt at pr- impersonating B.A., However, you've got uh, you've got a severely traumatized veteran, uh, a man who at times they have to break out of a mental institution, and yet he's completely played for laughs. And there are moments I do remember. There is the occasional moment where of lucid lucidness from Murdoch, and he and he says something kind of powerful, kind of emotional, and uh, but but by and large, he just says crazy things to wind up BA, and we're all meant to laugh at that and. And that kind of PTSD is not funny in the modern eyes. And uh, I I don't recall whether it's really fixed in any kind of way or explained other than just it's his signature move being a bit silly, uh, as it were. Also, you know, it's it's worth mentioning the amount of violence. There was quite a sort of pushback against the amount of gunplay in the A-Team in the 1980s saying, is this suitable for children? Now, as one of the children who watched it, it was amazing. It was awesome. And even I as a child recognized that it, the, all these automatic weapons firing, nobody ever gets hit. Everybody's always ducking. Cars explode. Cars exploding is PG. Somebody being riddled with bullets and falling over in a pool of blood is not PG, PG. I made the comment because only a few years later I saw Predator for the first time. And I said to my mother, I went, Do you know what the difference between Predator and the A-Team is? And she went, no, what's that? I went, red dots. Now, admittedly, there's filthy language in Predator as opposed to the A-Team, where I guess the harshest language you ever hear is fool. Uh, but um, I have a point in the sense that there are lots of action films which really have been influenced by the A Team in terms of their sort of their joyousness and the 80s, if there was ever a decade about the action movie, you've got Lethal Weapon, Predator, Die Hard, for example. These are all 80s movies, the glory days of of action films was the 1980s. And this naturally leaked into TV as well. You have the less actiony Night Rider. I don't know if I can do a history uh, podcast on, on Knight Rider. I'll think about it. But 18 is, uh, you know, you, you have... Mercenaries—they specifically use the term mercenaries—and we know that they're Vietnam veterans, so it's not surprising that they wouldn't have weapons of some description and know how know how to be competent with them. Although, quite why a pilot would be useful with automatic weapons is unclear, because he would be spending his time learning how to be a pilot. Similarly, the colonel, as well, is who's a master of disguise, which always means a sort of big stick-on prosthetic nose, as far as I can work out. You can always spot Hannibal and off, but apparently he's a master in disguise. Quite why he's also still uh, hot at the uh, automatic weapons, I don't know. Basically, it's fair to say that if you're in a firefight, you'd want BA and Face to be with you. They seem to be the ones who are most capable and most physically fit. But I, I, I digress. So we started with a little bit of a confession there about my childhood. Uh, we then got into heavy stuff about French imperialism in the 19th century, and the one thing I haven't answered yet is, well, what do the Vietnamese call the war? Because, of course, every war in Vietnam is the Vietnam War, and they've always fought the Vietnam War. And actually, Vietnam generally has fought a remarkable amount of wars and won them for such a small and impoverished nation. It is a poor country that it has done a surprising job of sort of punching above its weight. The answer is they call the war from the 1960s to the 1970s the American War, which seems pretty accurate to me of course the reality is that you know just as i said that the communists weren't automatically the good guys although the vietnamese won the vietnam war they certainly did so at a horrific cost more bombs were dropped on vietnam in the vietnam war than in the entire of world war 2 across the globe america tried to bomb not only vietnam but cambodia and laos into submission as well and to hit something called the ho chi minh trail the Uh, the jungle trail of logistical support to south vietnam for the communist uprising there and that ran largely through cambodia and therefore was a target by the americans and was hit again and again multiple times so millions and i do not I'm not exaggerating here but millions of Vietnamese died their entire country was its its logistical support was destroyed through heavy bombing it was um, huge areas were defoliated through agent orange there were birth defects thalidomide children uh, because of this agent orange uh, effect although thalidomide is actually from the th- thalidomide, but, you know, but with severe birth defects through Agent Orange, napalm as well. And so the, it took the country many years to recover from, from this supposed victory. If you listen to veterans of both sides, nobody's sitting there gloating. The Americans recognize that what happened there was horrific, but the Vietnamese as well Wished it never had happened. And indeed, there was a way to avoid it. Had the Americans remained neutral, had the Americans been less worried about communism, more more understood the nationalist intentions of Ho Chi Minh, there could have been a way round the whole thing. All of that. From the A-Team. Thank you very much for listening. This is Neon. There'll be another podcast soon, I assure you, where, again, I'll start with something as glittery and as lightweight as the A-Team, and I'll finish up with something as horrific as aerial bombardment. Thank you for listening, as always. Don't forget, you can continue this conversation and even help support Neon by going to patreon.com forward slash neon podcast. Simple.